From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Aristotle says, if we do ethics only in order to know something, then we've missed the point. (laughs) The whole point of ethics is to be something, to, to become something. And the becoming something is to become courageous, to become just, to become temperate, to become wise. So it, it's all about becoming a human being, becoming a fully formed human self. And that's what Kierkegaard is about. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome our guest, Robert C. Roberts. He's Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University, and among his many books are Taking the Word to Heart, Self and Others in an Age of Therapies, and Spiritual Emotions, A Psychology of Christian Virtues. Today we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard, and we're going to talk about the pronunciation of that name as we continue our conversation. But before we get into that, Professor Robert Roberts, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you very much, David. I'm happy to be here. As a way of beginning the conversation, I kind of want to start in two places. I want to start first with a proper pronunciation or how we should be pronouncing what is often written and read as Kierkegaard. How would you prefer that we say this theologian philosopher's name in the course of the conversation? We have a kind of an Americanization of the Danish, which is Kierkegaard. You slur over the second K and then you make it O-R at the end. For our listeners, just so you know, we're going to be talking about Soren Kierkegaard, and if you see it written, it will look to you like Soren Kierkegaard. So, Professor Roberts, I'd like to begin our conversation in a bit of an odd place. In the late 1920s, another theologian, a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth, wrote an essay, which is not one of his better-known essays, but it's one that I have oftentimes returned to, called Roman Catholicism, A Question for the Protestant Church. And in this essay, Bart says one of the values of Roman Catholicism for Protestants is it helps them to distinguish between a kind of cultural Protestantism and what he called a more authentic or spiritual Protestantism that was actually to his eyes, living the spirit of the Gospels. Now, when I began to read the introduction to your book, Recovering Christian Character, light bulbs went off in my head because I realized, oh my goodness, maybe Karl Barth was taking this distinction between a kind of cultural Protestantism and a more authentic Protestantism. Maybe he was cribbing that from Soren Kierkegaard. Now, as I present this to you, you and I haven't talked about this before the microphones were on, so I'm giving this to you fresh. I'm wondering, first of all, when I begin to make that connection, have I understood correctly what Kierkegaard's project is in differentiating these 
to different kinds of cultural and authentic moves within Christianity. And I guess let's start there, and then we can talk about how maybe Barter others may have taken up this move in Kierkegaard. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Kierkegaard has a very elaborate literature that he writes. It's very diverse, very artistic in some ways. But the purpose, he says, of that is to reintroduce Christianity to Christendom. And so he distinguishes between Christianity, which is the authentic kind of spirituality that you're, you and Bart are referring to, and Christendom, which is a kind of cultural Christianity, the kind of Christianity that assumes that if you're a Dane, you must be a Lutheran, that if, you're a, if your name is on the church register, as I guess every Lutheran in the 19th century was, you are already a Christian, right? And that that's basically what it was. You could maybe go to church every now and then, or maybe not, but, but everybody was, pretty much everybody was a Christian. And of course, the culture was infused with Christian concepts and Christian ideas. So there's some kind of truth to the claim that the Danish people were Christians, but it was not the kind of vital, intense Christianity that Kierkegaard thought to be characteristic of the New Testament and of real authentic Christianity. So if I'm hearing you correctly, these Danes were showing up to church, they were on the church rosters, they had these kind of cultural markers of Christianity, and they would look around and say, yes, those are the things that are needed for me to actually be a good Christian. And then if I'm hearing you and reading you correctly in your book, Recovering Christian Character, what Kierkegaard said was, no, to misquote the Gospels, you've kept the tithes of Annas and Cumin, but you've laid off the weightier matters of justice and the law. Now, when I make that kind of move and say Kierkegaard thought that Christianity was something else, and you mentioned a kind of greater intensity, or can you shape out for us what he was looking at and what he thought the essence of this Christian gospel was that the Danes around him were missing? Yes. The title of the book, Recovering Christian Character, is meant to suggest that he thought that a crucial way of thinking about the difference between Christendom and Christianity was in terms of the kind of character constitution of the person. And so when he talks about reintroducing Christianity to Christendom, he's talking about transforming people's lives, transforming people's character. And character consists for Kierkegaard, of primarily two aspects. On the one hand, he talks a great deal about passion. And by passion, he means love, concern, caring about things. That's a little bit different from the use of the word passion for an emotion. So passion in that sense of concern was not exactly an emotion, but it was a kind of, you might say, a kind of commitment of a person's life, a kind of directionality, a kind of caring about various objects of caring. So the sort of thing that you're supposed to care about if you're a real Christian is the kingdom of God, right? You're supposed to love God with your whole heart and mind and soul and, uh, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the, these two objects of passion, of caring, would, be, would constitute one aspect of character. The other aspect 
Kierkegaard also talked a great deal about thinking. And he said that his own work was entirely a work of reflection, that the missionary project that he had was entirely one of reflection. And what he meant by that was that one of the, one of the characteristics of Christendom and of this sort of secularized culture was that the concepts of Christianity were not clear and decisive. They hadn't taken up residence, you might say, in the hearts of people. So what he was trying to do was to get people to rethink their lives in terms that were more distinctively Christian than the secular way of doing so. It was a kind of a, that, they, that people were thinking, they, they were using terms like God, and maybe even to some extent sin, but they, those concepts didn't have the kind of sharp edges that they need to have in order for them to shape Christian character. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Kierkegaard was looking and wanting to change the culture from a kind of, I don't know the right term, aesthetic Christianity or a kind of surface Christianity to a more kind of depth or authentic Christianity. You use the word mission work as one of the ways of describing this. There are lots of ways that churches try and do this in their regular daily routines. And the word that comes to me is catechesis, where you have a catechism that asks a question and gives an answer. But Kierkegaard chose a different path. Instead, he chose to write a series of works that were almost theatrical. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that, because he comes in and he inhabits different characters as he's writing these various books. So not every book by Kierkegaard is actually a book by Kierkegaard. That may be a little confusing to our listeners. Can you help to explain what, what's going on here? Yes. He saw diversity within Christendom. So some people were, you might say, intentionally characterless, <laughs> and other people were unintentionally characterless. So you had a variety of characters within Christendom, within the Danish society, and they were of diverse outlooks. They had, some of them were religious, some of them were ethical, but not religious or not very religious, and others were outright esthetes. And so Kierkegaard devised this scheme for thinking about characters and your listeners have probably come across the fact that Kierkegaard had three stages, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. And they may be a little less familiar with the division of the religious into religiousness A and religiousness B. But any case, in any case, he divided the human world into these four or three, what he called spheres or stages on life's way. And then the characters that you speak of were, they would belong, you might say, to one or another of these spheres. So Johannes Climacus was the author of the Philosophical Fragments and the Concluding Unscientific Postscript, was a kind of religiousness A character. He was religious, but he wasn't quite Christian. And he was moving towards Christianity. Uh, Judge William in the Either Or, the second volume of Either Or, was a kind of culturally ethical character. 
And he talked about God, but it was a, even more diluted than Johannes Climacus. Then there were people who were esthetes, out and out esthetes. And some of the student pseudonymous characters in either or were, had, that, had that character. And they were intentionally trying to avoid character. But they thought that the way to happiness and, and well-being and spiritual success was to be outside of time so that they didn't have temporal continuity. I mean, they worked hard at not having temporal continuity and living in the moment. They had a spiritual discipline, you might say, of d- designed to abstract them from time, from their temporal temporality. And so they were characterless in that very intentional, concerted sense. But then most of the people in Christendom were just secular, just going with the cultural flow. Yeah. Now, David, you said something about Kierkegaard's changing the culture, and that's right. But it's also, it's a little bit, it needs to be qualified a little bit, I think. Well, maybe let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back to that, and maybe we can pick up there when we're into our next segment. But for right now, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University. We're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University, and today we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. Well, before the break, we were talking about the ways in which Soren Kierkegaard was using these different characters to get at the question of character or the lack thereof. And I had made a comment that, in my view, Kierkegaard was trying to change Danish culture by undertaking these various types of inhabited writings where he was writing from different perspectives of different sorts of characters. And one thing that was clear as we were moving towards the break just a moment ago was that you wanted to add some nuance to that notion of Kierkegaard changing the culture. So I'd like to invite you to speak to that now. Yes. We can think of culture in, in two ways. We can think of culture as what you think is normative for people, for human beings, culturally appropriate or something appropriate to the human condition. But you could also think of it as a kind of sociological category, that, that it's a kind of ethos, you might say, that pervades a certain social group, such as maybe the Danes. And Kierkegaard does want to change culture in the first sense, 
He wants to transform the way people think about themselves and what they care about. That's what changing their character it would be. But I think he would think that actually changing the whole cultural landscape of De Denmark was a bit grandiose and not something that he was particularly able to do. Because the one thing is the writings were so culturally highbrow, shall we say, that there were not going to be, the people in the street were probably not going to read his work. They probably weren't going to be transformed by them. So the, there was a kind of special audience that he had. And he would talk about that individual, my leader, about whom I think with gratitude and joy. And so he thinks of himself as writing sort of one-to-one I'm speaking to you as David Dalt, if I'm Kierkegaard. I want to speak to your heart. I want to speak to your mind. I'm certainly interested in transforming you. And in, a, in that first sense of the word culture, I'm interested in transforming your culture. But I don't think I'm going to transform the whole Danish culture. That would be far beyond what I can do by reflection. So something that strikes me in what you just said, and it, you talk about this at several points in your book, Recovering Christian Character, and that is Soren Kierkegaard chose not to write systematic theology, and in fact disdained systematizing things. There's one point where he sort of mocks the great German philosopher Hegel for his attempt to systematize everything. So he he looks at that kind of approach to writing, the kind of wrapping everything up in a system, and says, I don't want to do that. I want to do something that's going to be more useful and more accessible. But what I'm hearing in what you just said was he still recognizes that there was a severe limitation in what he was doing in this kind of writing. He was writing to a very select audience. And so I want to ask you if he wanted to write in ways that would be more effective than an ivory tower philosopher or theologian, why didn't he write even more popularly than he did? Why didn't he write plays? Why didn't he write novels? Why didn't he take the standpoint of someone like Camus or Sartre later in the 20th century? What was it that made him think that this particular approach of literature to this very narrow audience was going to have any effect at all? Yes, that's a really good question. And I think it, it is a kind of challenge to Kierkegaard's project. It was not one that would reach the common man. And he very he much, he loved the common man too. He was sympathetic to those folks, but I think he just wasn't, it just wasn't in him to be able to speak at that kind of, in that mode. It, in a way, I, yeah, I think my own book is a kind of an explanation for people who find Kierkegaard daunting. And there are a lot of people who do. I tried to write this book in a way that was clearer than Kierkegaard ever <laughs> himself wrote, and to avoid also the kind of jargon that you get in some Kierkegaard disciples, which also is just about as, as incomprehensible as Kierkegaard. Yeah, I start the book out in the preface talking about my first encounter with Kierkegaard when I was 19 years old, 60 years ago. And I talk about how he just completely befuddled me. I was a kind of an intellectual kid, I guess, but I found it both in inspiring and in and invigorating 
and incomprehensible all at the same time. It was such lively writing in a way, and so sophisticated and so full of humor and, and good, good fun. And yet it was also just really obscure. And some parts of Kierkegaard remain obscure to me after 60 years of reading. So it's not easy stuff. And I, so I, I'm completely sympathetic to your, your question about simplification and maybe taking away some of the unnecessary complications of it. I mean, it, Kierkegaard made, he just made up terms all the time. He would, he would terms like double reflection, where you look, you say, well, what is double reflection? <laughs> you know, and it takes, takes maybe quite a bit of exegesis just to figure out what he means by those expressions. And he, he just tosses them off as though everybody knows what double reflection is. Well, and this is one of the things that I found so valuable about your book, Recovering Christian Character, because you are accomplishing exactly what you've just said that you set out to do. I am a person who I have several degrees in theology, and I've always hit my head against Kierkegaard and been, I don't know what's going on here, I'm not following this, and I don't have time to read 15 books to get up to speed on it. And I found your book to be incredibly clear, to be ordering things for me, even down to terms like the one that you just used, double reflection, where in an extensive footnote, you lay out very clearly what you think Kierkegaard is up to there. I found all of that incredibly helpful. And I just want to say to listeners, if you've heard this name, Soren Kierkegaard, and you've been thinking that you need to get into reading some of this, but you don't know where to begin, and if or if you have begun, you don't know where to make hide nor hair of it, I'm going to just say that your book, Recovering Christian Character, is an excellent place for people to start. I don't know if you intended this as a kind of introductory text, and at 370 pages, it's quite a lengthy introductory text, but it was such a worthwhile and clear endeavor for me to read it. I'm just incredibly grateful for how you laid everything out. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate the, that endorsement. <laughs> and you, and you, 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 what, you're, what you're saying is very gratifying to me because it is what I intended to do. Well, let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University, and we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. Well, we've gotten deep into the weeds here in terms of like technical terms and all the sorts of things that, that Soren Kierkegaard was trying to do with his overall project. But I think that for the sake of making sure that our listeners are following us clearly, I want to return to something and clear it up. Because your book is a book about the formation of character. And earlier in the conversation, I also noted that in the process of talking about the formation of Christian character, Soren Kierkegaard wrote in a number of different character voices. And so we've been using that term in sort of two ways currently. And I think now is a good time to distinguish when we're talking about Christian character as opposed to the characters and the different voices in which Kierkegaard wrote— Help us to understand what you are seeing in terms of this term Christian character. Line that out for us. Okay. The book associates Kierkegaard with the classical philosophers as distinguished from the existentialists. 
Now, Kierkegaard is often identified as a kind of uh, proto-existentialist, the father of existentialism. That's what almost everybody learns when they take a course in existentialism or 19th century philosophy. And I think that's quite wrong. Kierkegaard's hero was Socrates. And Socrates, had, of course, was, gave rise to Plato and Aristotle. And Plato's dialogues were often, they took virtues as objects of inquiry. So there's a dialogue on justice that's called uh, the Republic. And there's a dialogue on courage. And there's one on friendship and so forth. So you got a variety of, the dialogues tended to be focused on some kind of character trait, an excellence, a human excellence in, the, in terms of character. And then Aristotle, of course, is the most famous virtue ethicist, probably. And, uh, and he writes of the book Nicomachean Ethics, which is a sort of standard textbook on virtues, on ancient virtues. So all these people were interested, all his, the ancient predecessors were interested in the virtues and in, in character in that sense. The existentialists, on the other hand, tended to be to think that you should be constantly choosing yourself and that any kind of sort of resting in something that you'd already achieved, any kind of standpoint that you had occupied prior should be transcended, right? So that the self is, is authentic only when it's constantly transcending itself, constantly getting beyond itself and abandoning its past in a way. And, and so... The notion of the continuity of character was directly contrary to the, the notion of, that existentialism was holding up as an ideal of human functioning. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we have this body of scholarship that reads Kierkegaard as a kind of proto-existentialist. And the existentialists, as you were saying, were the people that were always interested in a project of self-overcoming and re-narration of the self. And that if we take that as the right way to read Kierkegaard, if I'm hearing you correctly, we're missing the point because we're getting trapped in an aesthetic way of thinking about proper, authentic humanity, as opposed to a more robust and grounded, foundational way. And here's where my language is kind of escaping me. Are you literally saying that most Kierkegaard scholars who read him as an existentialist are reading him incorrectly because they're reading him more aesthetically than he would have preferred? Well, it is true that the aesthete has this project also of, of kind of never depending on what he's been in the past, <laughs> never you know, trying to destroy continuity, temporal continuity. So in that sense, the existentialists are promoting a an ideal of human functioning that's similar to the aesthetes. Yeah, so that's, that, that seems right. And so if that's the case, then is it too grand to say that you are proposing a kind of revolution in the reading of Kierkegaard here, or would you say it in a different way? I think it's a very different reading from the standard reading, yes. Yeah. So it's associating Kierkegaard with, with virtue ethics, and it, we have to think about virtue ethics in a very special sense, though, in order to do that. The ancient philosophers thought that the point of philosophy, the point of the kind of reflective life that is characteristic of philosophers, is supposed to transform your character, right? It's supposed to make you into a human being, a fully human being. 
So the whole idea was a kind of existentialist in a sense, in this sense, that it's all about personal transformation. If that's kind of a, a much broader notion of existentialism than the narrow Sartrean, Heideggerian kind. So ancient virtue ethics was about that. It was a project of self-realization, self-transformation. Aristotle says, if we do ethics only in order to know something, then we've missed the point. <laughs> the whole point of ethics is to be something, to, to become something. And the becoming something is to become courageous, to become just, to become temperate, to become wise. So it, it's all about becoming a human being, becoming a fully formed human self. And that's what Kierkegaard is about. And so, it, so he is undertaking this project almost as an invitation, an invitation to people to become, and again, here the language is going to escape me. Are we talking about a kind of eudaimonia, a kind of end teleological goal? Are we just inviting in a kind of Norman Vincent Peale kind of fashion for people to become their happiest selves? What is the end game here for Kierkegaard? Yeah, yeah good. That's a good, good question. Johannes Flemicus, in the Concluding Unscientific Postscript, says that the telos of human life is what he calls an eternal happiness. So he's got that very notion of happiness right there built into the, into the notion of what the telos is. That's a very Aristotelian sort of thing, in a way. Um, however, he shows in the Concluding Unscientific Postscript that it's virtually impossible to achieve that, right? So what, what the whole project of sort of seeking eternal happiness becomes a disaster, shall we say, that is to be resolved only by Jesus Christ, only by the atonement, only by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Well, there's a very Lutheran theology going on here. It's as though this project of gaining an eternal happiness is like Luther's use of the law. It's supposed to drive you to Christ. And that's, so, so at the very end of the postscript, you have this section called Religiousness B. And it's a small section. Most of the book has been about Religiousness A. But that Religiousness B is Christianity. And it's, it's the religion of the paradox. And the paradox is, of course, Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. So that's the telos. But the telos is not something that you, that you just achieve by Aristotelian bootstrapping. You don't just start behaving correctly and then you get, get in the habit of, <laughs> of doing so and then you end up saved or something like that. It's not, it doesn't work like that. It works like a kind of Lutheran despair that throws you onto Christ and the necessity of being saved from outside. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University, and today we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. 
Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, Things Not Seen Radio. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University. Among his many books are Taking the Word to Heart, Self and Others in an Age of Therapies, and Spiritual Emotions, A Psychology of Christian Virtues. Today we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. So I'm wanting to wrap my head around something, and so I'm going to ask the a question that I asked earlier in a slightly different version. So we've talked now about your reading of Soren Kierkegaard as reaching back to a version of the virtue ethics of the ancients. And if we look at what it meant to become self, self-actualized as a human in that period of thinking, it was the Zoan politicon, the person that gets involved in political action. If we move ahead to the 19th century with someone like Karl Marx, we move to homo faber, that we are actualized through making things. But it seems to me, if I'm understanding you correctly, that Kierkegaard instead said, no, I'm going to remake you through reading, and I'm going to offer you empathy with these various types of voices that are coming up in these books that I'm writing under different names and with different kinds of illustrations of ways to be ethically Danish, (laughs) moving us towards Christianity. Is it so simple to say that he was trying to reform characters through the act of empathic reading, or would you say it in a different way? I think that your word empathy, empathic, is very insightful, because Kierkegaard is able to get inside these characters in a way that is just extraordinary. And it's that's part of the strategy to get inside them so that he's not criticizing them, you might say, from outside. Of course, he is criticizing the esthete. Too. It's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which the, he shows that the esthete sort of self-destructs at the end, that the, yes, the aesthetic life is just a, is a psychological disaster and it just doesn't work. And of course, the ethical life too ends up being a life of despair if it's, if it's sufficiently intense. <laughs> if you try hard enough to be ethical, then you find out that you can't you do it very well and you end up not liking yourself too well. But so, yeah, the, it, it is, it's an, a virtuoso performance of empathy, I would say, the pseudonymous. And, and it, I thought that, that makes it so powerful because it, it's as though... I look in, if I'm an esthete or an ethical person like Judge William, I read that and I just see myself in the mirror. In fact, it's, I see a sharper image of myself than I've ever seen at all. What strikes me about this, Professor Roberts, is, and I want to create a kind of thought experiment here, because it strikes me that this word that comes up again and again in your book, Recovering Christian Character, this notion of diagnosis, this notion of therapy, it strikes me that Freud would have written very differently, perhaps, if there had been no Kierkegaard. Just because the kind of way in which Kierkegaard is inviting us to think about humans in their extraordinary variety 
in this kind of empathic way that also shows that even though we can empathize with a particular type of construction of a character, we can also see that ultimately it leads to a kind of end game of destruction, to use the language that you just said about the esthete. We can see a parallel there to the way that different psychic formations happen in Freudian analysis. But what I want to do now in the thought experiment is if Kierkegaard had access to Freud, if Kierkegaard had the notion that he was not just writing about character, but something like an id or something like an unconscious, would that have changed what he was doing? Or would he still have found a way to move that into the kind of Lutheran simul justus et peccator, the kind of we're simultaneously saints and sinners? Like, would any of this modern stuff have changed Kierkegaard at all? Or would he have just said, no, I've got a way of making that part of this analysis as well? <laughs> oh, boy. That's a tough one. Kierkegaard, of course, is already talking about the unconscious in, a, in say, the sickness and to death. There's the notion that you can be that you can be in despair and not know it at all, just be completely oblivious of it, or to be anxious and not to, not to notice it. That's, I suppose, kind of some kind of an anticipation of Freud. But Kierkegaard was so steeped in Christianity. It's hard to imagine dividing up the soul in quite the way Freud does. The notion of the id is actually in Plato's Republic, in Book Nine. Yeah, yeah. The in the analysis of the tyrant. There's so that there's not only the political tyrant, but there's also the tyrannic man, the human being who's formed in a tyrannical form. So you've got the dialectic between the soul and the state going on throughout the Republic, and in Book Nine, it's the tyrannic soul. And the sort of tyrannic element in the soul is something that comes out in, in dreams. It's when, the, when a person dreams about having sexual intercourse with his mother, for example. <laughs> and that, Plato, that's Plato's example, that id. I mean, it's that utterly primitive, sort of pure, sensual desire element in the soul that needs to be mastered, right? That has to be mastered. And so you've also got something corresponding to the superego, which, which is self-control, right? You, where you press down on that, on that primitive part of the soul. And then you've got, of course, the higher part, the ego. But, but the ego in Plato, and I think in Kierkegaard too, it's divine, right? It's in touch with, it's in touch with something that's transcendent. And so... So it's not just suppressing the evil in the, in the self, but it's ascending, you might say, to the good. It's got that tendency. It's got an arrow towards the good. And I, I think Kierkegaard is more like Plato there, but I don't. he talks about the demonic. Now, maybe there's some way of making a connection between the demonic in Kierkegaard and the id in Freud, but I'm not sure how that would be done, actually, uh, yeah, so it's an it, interesting question. 
you're so gracious already just to entertain that question. And here's what I heard in your answer, that when we look at someone like Freud, he is trying to create a kind of psychic integration of these various pieces, the id, the ego, the superego, and that the ultimate goal of his work and his analysis is to try and have us feel comfortable in our animal skins, if you will. Uh, where we're not killing each other. and all. But what I heard you saying is that Kierkegaard's goal is something very different. He's not trying to integrate and reconcile these. He's trying to allow the divine to redeem them in some way and to bring them to something that is greater than we would imagine the human would have as a possibility. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I'm saying this, am I on to where, the direction that you're wanting to go, or would you say it in a different way? Well, as I understand Freud, and I'm not Nothing but a nothing of a Freud expert make it. Uh, it. Freud would think that the superego is a sort of cultural construct, right? It, it's a way of culturally putting a cap on the unruliness of the id. But for Kierkegaard, the ethical sense it has this transcendent aspiration or something. I mean, it, what he calls it the eternal in itself, and the eternal. The word the eternal can both indicate some an aspect of the self, but it can also be a, a name for God. So there's a kind of an external eternal and an internal eternal uh, in Kierkegaard. And these are, of course, highly related. The, the, your, the internal in the self aspires to, the, to a connection with the eternal as God. So, yeah. This is very different, I think, from Freud, even though they share this notion of the unconscious in some sense. Well, and here's where I want to bring it back to your book, Recovering Christian Character, because you conclude one of your early chapters with what I found to be a very intriguing moment where you say, okay, we're looking at this diagnosis that Kierkegaard is offering to us, and it's a diagnosis of a certain type of symptom. But it might not, and I may have read you. I may have read you incorrectly, so feel free to correct me. But it's a diagnosis of a symptom. You know, usually when we talk about that, we're looking for the underlying cause. But in this particular case, the underlying cause, if I read you correctly, is being human itself. And so we're trying to diagnose a symptom that is arising from the mere fact of we are created beings who are lost in our limitation. And so what I'm trying to get at with these crazy questions about Freud is that Freud is trying to diagnose humanity in a certain way. And it seems as if Kierkegaard is trying to diagnose humanity in a certain way. But the therapy that Kierkegaard is offering us is ultimately very different and grounded in a different place than what we in the 21st century sort of think we're looking for when we're looking for these kinds of rehabilitations. Now, when I make that distinction, am I understanding correctly that Kierkegaard is offering us something radically different than what we think we're looking for in the self-help books, or how would you say it? Yeah, that, that is that's suggestive. I think you're referring to when you refer to the notion of diagnosis. I think you might be referring to the section on despair and yeah, sickness unto death. Yes. And yeah. So so despair is itself a disease or a state of dysfunction in the soul, but it's diagnostic of our being human. Right. What it shows the fact that we can be in despair shows that we're human. That we have a that we have a self. What Kierkegaard has a special 
sense of the word self. So animals don't have a self exactly, even though they may be conscious and maybe subject to all kinds of things like having thoughts and pains and so forth. But they don't reflect on themselves in a way that's required for them to be a self. <laughs> and a self is a being that relates itself to itself. And then it, in relating it to itself, it, it relates itself to another. There's a kind of complicated thing, sickness unto death. But the fact that we can be in despair is diagnostic of the fact that we have a self. And that's the distinctively human nature of us. And it's everything depends on that, that our, the whole business of having virtues, the, the possibility of having faith, hope, and love, the possibility of being patient and humble and grateful, and all of these things require this kind of reflectiveness that is characteristic of a human self and which is shown by the fact that we can fall into despair. And so when we look at your book and the development of and recovery of this kind of Christian character, you are about a project of helping us to see Kierkegaard helping us along the way. Like You're trying to create through lines and almost, if you will, blazing trails within the dense forest of Kierkegaard's writings to say, if you look at it this way and follow this particular path, you will lead to a kind of open glen where the sunlight is piercing through the limbs again. Now, forgive my painterly language there, but when I say it that way, is that kind of what you were hoping that the reader is going to be getting out of this? Yes, I'm commending a different way of reading Kierkegaard from the way it's been read often. And it would be a reading that is very pastoral, that's very church-focused, even though Kierkegaard didn't have that much to to do with congregations. Very much a sort of source for pastors and preaching. The whole second half of the book is about uh, faith, hope, love, gratitude, humility and patience. And so, and these are all just aspects of Christian character, right? They're the virtue, they're the Christian virtue. And they have this distinctive character of depending on Christian, Christian ways of thinking about the world, thinking about ourselves, thinking about God. And also they have the characteristic of presupposing that we care about God, that we love God, that we love our neighbor because The neighbor is an image of God. And so all of those character traits are what you might say that those are the goal. The formation of those things are the goal of church life. At least they're one one side of church life. I mean, the other side, of course, is to glorify God. And it's different from being concerned about ourselves, right? It's different from being concerned with our own formation. So the glory, glorifying God is something that we do that we're not trying to be. We're not, that's not part of the self-help project, <laughs> you might say. On the other hand, the whole business of becoming persons of faith and hope and love and humility and so forth, that's also a project of the church, right? That we meet in congregations, not only to worship God, but also to grow and to become persons who can worship God, to, be, to gain that, that orientation and that vision of life out of which flows the worship of God. 
Well, Professor Robert Roberts, I am so grateful that you took the time to write a book like this. As I've said at various points in this conversation, I have, in all of my studies, had difficulty understanding Soren Kierkegaard. Your book was the first time that I actually felt like I had a fighting chance of getting through this material with some sort of profitable reading. And I'm incredibly grateful that you took the time to write the book. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it today with me and my listeners. Thank you, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to think about it. And I appreciate your good questions. You've done a wonderful job at drawing out the issues. <laughs> Thank you. We've been speaking today with Robert C. Roberts. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Ethics at Baylor University. Among his many books are Taking the Word to Heart, Self and Others in an Age of Therapies, and Spiritual Emotions, A Psychology of Christian Virtues. Today we've been talking about his recent book, Recovering Christian Character, The Psychological Wisdom of Soren Kierkegaard. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijif. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>